0: Delighted to have one of my heroes, Silvia Federici, the author of Revolution at Point Zero, Housework, Reproduction, and Feminist Struggle. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Silvia. Oh, thank you, Silvia, for inviting me. Talk a little about the way we as women ubicate ourselves within this idea of reproduction and reproductive work.
1: Yes, and by the way, it's very interesting, this question, because... In the last weeks, because of this epidemic, because so many people have been pushed back in the home, and so also women who have jobs outside the home, now the difficulty of reconciling the two is intensified. Often you have to carry on your work and then also the work in the home with the children, etc. You know, the question of reproduction, I think that it's in moments of crisis like this, that we can see more than ever how important it is, and also how we have been living now for so long, at least many, many, the majority of women in a state of permanent crisis, because, you know, reproduction is the activity that in a way, you know, carries on life on a day-to-day basis makes it possible for us, you know, to, to keep on living and uh, to to thrive, you know, whether it is child raising or even cleaning and cooking and emotional work and sexual work. At the same time, as important and potentially creative, this work has been, uh, you know, taken over appropriated, you know, the employer class, capitalism, you know, and uh, bent to the needs of the labor market, to the needs of the exploitation of labor. So we are carrying on a work that is potentially, you know, very satisfying and very creative, but in conditions that we do not control, and in condition that make it very oppressive, that isolates. you know, it's a very individualizing work because we are all, you know, isolated in our home, and also it's a work that is given no recognition, in fact, it's not even considered real work, and people say, oh, do you have a job, do you go out to work, you know, assuming that in the home, it's just a question of nature. And, uh, you know, it, it's a work that is done in condition that the majority of women is terrible. You have no space in the house. You have no resources, no money, uh, often having to work outside the home. So you have a double shift. I believe that it's very, very important, you know, particularly for the feminist movement. When we think of changing the society, when we think of social change, and particularly in situations like now, that make it very, very clear that we need a a social change because this epidemic is bringing to light, is revealing all the contradictions, all the crises with which we live on a day-to-day basis, whether it is housing, for example. You know, we are told to do social distancing, and most people, because of the high cost of rent, you know, are living crammed in apartments where you... Cannot have any social distances, and uh, the lack of resources, the fact that we have to rely on food that is probably full of pesticides. Agriculture has been so industrialized. C- crop making, crops, food crops, is now uh, an industrial process. You know, so we are eating pesticides, herbicides. So all of that. It's making, for example, going shopping. I experience all the time, and I don't even have children. You know, you don't know if what you're buying is transgenic, how it has been cultivated, and also, you know, what happened to the workers who made those crops. You now buy crops that have been produced hundreds and hundreds of miles away, and you don't know how much blood has gone into that production. So... I think that we need a really a major restructuring of the logic that is governing in this society, which is a logic that devalues reproduction work and because it really devalues people's life. It really devalues people's life and only care for what they call the real economy. Really care for you know individual wealth accumulation, corporate power, the whole capitalist accumulation of wealth. And this is why life for so many people, you know, has become so miserable. Even before this now pandemic, I've been living in a state of constant crisis. You know, you have fires in the forest. Half of the world is burning and uh, because they're making space for raising more cattle. You know, you have an epidemic of cancer. Look at the cancer statistic every year in the United States. Far, 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 far more than those who are dying, you know, of coronavirus. Cancer has become now an epidemic. You hardly have anybody who doesn't have a friend, who doesn't have gone, you know, through the experience of having a cancer. And this is because what we eat is so contaminated, so polluted. You know, we eat meat from animals that have been packed in the thousands. And so every day are full of pathogens. Then they have to be given antibiotics, you know, so that the the meat does not kill us immediately. But in the end, it kills us through the cancers that are now multiplying like a real epidemic. But nobody talks about it because you cannot touch the, the meat industry. Like nobody talks about the deforestation that is also contributing to climate change. So the animals are moving from one area to the other, and they are communicating diseases that before they were not nobody's talking about the agriculture that now is full of pesticides and you know carried on with fumigation etc which also is contributing to destroy our immunity system so i think what this epidemic is bringing to light it's really the reproduction crisis that we have been you know, and at the, at the very core of this reproduction crisis is the devaluation, which has been a devaluation of women's life, Because the devaluation of reproduction since women have been, at least in the history of capitalism, has been really the main subject of reproductive work. Now many women have jobs outside their home, and since the 80s also, because so many women have also gone out to work, You know, there's been a lot of, you know, the organization of importing labor. You know, women, migrant workers coming to do domestic work, you know, from countries that have been impoverished. So the women, women, many times don't have an alternative but to migrate to give a better future to their children. But whoever is performing this work, this work is essential. Yes. We're talking about the essential economy, essential work. It's very interesting that nobody talks about the work that is going on in the home as essential work as well. And, of course, women are the essential worker, whether it is the nurses, whether it is, you know, the, the people who are cultivating food, or whether it is the people who are providing reproduction in the home. It's really the women who have been at the center of this crisis. And so my view is that it, it's hopefully we will be able to turn the table and turn this crisis into a moment of education, into a moment of consciousness raising to the conclusion that we really have to reorganize reproduction and reorganize the logic, reorganize and change qualitatively, drastically the logic that is governing the function of this system.
0: One of the gifts you have given us um, as a collective is a very clear and a very succinct description of what the system we live under is. You know, I, And I love that you talk about how capitalism has been portrayed to us as a necessary evil, this idea that it was a natural process that liberated workers from the the tyranny of labor. Yeah, quite the contrary. And so I wonder if you could talk about how not only it is the contrary, but how the capitalist system, just like colonization, has become normalized in our society, and it has just become this way of being where valorization of human life comes out of the ability to be exploited, to produce for, um, for the capitalist system. That's so central
1: because when I say that capitalism is not progress, promise of actually improving the condition of humanity and uh, also eliminating the most brutal forms of work, you can actually see there is a complete historical lie and you can see from the history of capitalism which begins with slavery. Begins with the expropriation of the peasantry from the land in Europe, and it begins with the enslavement of millions of millions of people, and not only. And that enslavement has lasted for three centuries, way beyond the beginning of capitalism. You could say, "Oh, well, it was an accident." No, it was not an accident, because it lasted into the 19th century, the century of enlightenment. The century of the so-called Democratic Revolution, the French Revolution, equality, fraternity, there was slavery. Actually, those who made the French Revolution, you know, were people who had gained so much power. There's a beautiful book by C.L.R. James, the Black Jacobins, that documents all of this, showing that the protagonists of the French Revolution were, in fact, the French you know, business people who had enriched themselves through the slave trade and they had gained so much economic power that they could defy, you know, the aristocracy. And then the whole history through the 19th century and 20th century is an history of colonization, is a history of the most brutal, brutal forms of exploitation. In the Congo, the rubber industry, the rubber industry that was the center of the auto industry, they would cut the hands and cut the arms, you know, of the workers in the Congo, and thousands and thousands died if they were not sufficiently productive. All the history of colonialism. And then you look at Europe, and then you see 50 million, two World War, 50 million people. And when you look at it in historical perspective you see that the whole destruction of life was actually very functional to destroy peasant europe to prepare the workforce for industrialization the actual industrialization was the result you know of the of the two wars uh, and and uh, on a massive scale on a massive scale producing a whole new proletariat you know, they had gone through the discipline of the army, and now was ready for the discipline, you know, of the of the factory, and uh, and colonization continued. We are living in a colonial system. I, I often become very sceptical when people in the university speak of post-colonial or decolonial. There is nothing post-colonial in 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 our society. When you look at the international division of labour. You see that it's completely colonial. In fact, the, what we call neoliberalism applied to Africa, Latin America, uh, the process of structural adjustment. This was a process of recolonization. And we have to see the colonialism, like capitalist production in general, as never the same form. Of course, it changes depending on the different changes of capitalist production and the labor market. But when you look at, you know, colonialism today, you know, countries in Africa, they might not have the British or the French flag on the top of their government building. But all the economy, all their social structuring, is completely depending on the international monetary system. And it's completely dependent on the decision of the World Bank and the IMF. They don't have any autonomy. And even if they have a kind of, you know, uh, perfunctory presence at the United Nations, they always vote to, you know, with the the, the block where their money is coming from. So, uh, and we see the division of labor. I mean, who is doing the, the most unpaid, precarious, dangerous, unrecognized, and vulnerable jobs in American society, or in Europe, for that matter. You know, it's people from Latin America, it's people from Asia, the Caribbean island. I mean, we only have a colonial organization of the division of labor. We are going to go from the catastrophe of the pandemic to the catastrophe of a lot of people having no money, no job, no security, and nobody's going to face this in a more brutal way. The immigrant people, you know, on top of it have to be afraid of going to a hospital because of of ICE and be afraid of being deported. The cruelty of this system, there's no words to describe it. And I always feel very... I'm very cynical and suspicious when I hear all this concern about, you know, our health care. The concern, I think, is for something else. Because much of the suffering that we are experiencing today is the result of of policies that were very consciously implemented. The lack of preparation, for instance, was not, you know, an accident, was not an oversight. Right, but there was a decision, for instance, not to invest in certain services and invest in other, not to invest in what was most important to people reproduction, and so that we could be prepared in front of an emergency, but to invest in what would be, you know, most profitable.
0: So- you know, people think uh, the capitalist system is necessary now; is part of our lives, and we have to do whatever to keep it afloat. So we've seen multiple crises where governments are forced to donate their GDP, their entire growth production. Oh yeah, and how we saw how in 2008, Obama, who everybody has hailed as being almost saintly, uh, gave the entire the entire wealth of the United States to the bankers. So. Um I'm, I'm curious as to where you see this, because we've never recovered from that so-called crisis. And so this little, um, this pause that has been imposed has, of course, had some benefit in that we are seeing who the essential workers are. You know, the women who produce yeah. all the services, the women who are in the homes cooking nonstop today, and, and also the nurses, the doctors, the people serving food. But we also see how this pause is is causing a lot of the small entrepreneurs out of business. And what happens yes. usually after a downturn is the, the bankers, the people with wealth, come in like vultures, you know, and they take everything that goes into foreclosure, right? So what I'm looking at is a world that we may wake up, you know, two months or three months into uh, after we so call it safe to go out again, into a world where we, more uh, capitalist concentration has occurred. It's capitalism has learned to
1: use, uh, you know, crisis and to produce crisis when they need them, to use them and to produce them in order to restructure itself. You know, in the 30s, Schumpeter was a famous economist. He spoke of creative destruction. The capitalism has to go to a period of creative destruction, which is a period in which they somehow cut the dry branches from their trees, you know, they, they restructure in a way of eliminating all those jobs and, and and activities that are not profitable any longer because they are pacing, you know, they're moving to a new phase. And so there's no question, and we already see the, the outline, you know, the outline, first of all, the made a new transfer of wealth from below, you know, to the top. You know, the famous help, as usual, as in 2008, is actually – Helping the bank and then the big company, the corporation, and not the small shops that are waiting there. Like you know, the parched land is waiting for the rain, because they know that if the help doesn't come on in the time, they are going to shut down. And I think that's what they want. They want to really do away with a lot of small business, so that there will be the hegemony of the corporation, the big chain, chain of food, we already see the trend and that's going to accelerate. And also the organization of work. Already and not only in the United States, I mean I was talking to my sister this morning who is in Italy, and she was saying that in Italy too, now they are saying that a lot of the classroom for the future, not not just uh, during the epidemic are going to be online, because this is going to be so much cheap. So the whole experience you know, maybe the, the classroom experience will be reserved to a few, to the happy few, you know, those who can afford to go to certain universities. But more and more, particularly at the so-called lower level, take of the community colleges, so we can already see the outline, how they're going. And um, the bigger question is, you know, that uh, the, the the kind of catastrophe that we can already foresee adding up to the health crisis, you know, in terms of people's lives, you know, it's is somehow also a product of the fact that, that for some time now, the capitalist class has been complaining that their rates of profit are not high enough. And this is something that has been going on, and I believe that much of the restructuring that is going to take place will also be done from this point of view. For the last 30 years, you know, the international international capital has really put the world, turned the world upside down. You know, neoliberalism has forced government to disinvest in some of the most essential services and programs that people have, you know, and these across the globe, they have imposed the most brutal austerity program, monetary devaluation. Nevertheless, they are complaining that their rate of profit is not high enough. And it, one of the, of the ways that it has manifested itself is that the interest rate of money, on, you know, when you go, has dropped to zero, which is an anomaly because normally in the last century it's been 3 to 4 point percent. Now it's zero, which means that actually there's been, before, before the epidemic, there's been a reluctance to invest, and that reluctance is connected to the perception that the profit rate is not high enough. So when we look historically how you know, capitalism has tried to adjust the profit rate to what they consider important. Death means the application of even more brutal forms of exploitation. So
0: in Latin America, I I, I grew up during the war times and uh, the dirty wars of the 80s. And for us, it meant going from um, being hungry to starving. You know, it just meant uh, this... O- overnight inflation, this overnight right. violence, you know, and bombs that started raining on people who dissented and, you know, went against the government. And not only am I concerned about the idea of austerity going on steroids, and for people who don't understand what austerity, we're talking about how governments cut their spending on healthcare, on education, on any, you know, housing that which has been elusive for the, you know, almost two decades now in Canada. I o- I'm also concerned. Concerned about this idea of imposing massive vaccination, of forcing people uh, into uh, isolation, because for social movements, our immunity has always been community. You know, for us in Latin America. Right,
1: absolutely. Oh, yes.
0: So if you could talk a little bit about how do we, in this time of crisis, because I think also crisis also wakes us up as movements. You know, yeah. we, we, this is also vitamins for us because it's not just the capitalist system that gets reinforced by this. The people who also see, you know, the the sand shifting beneath our feet, we, we get motivated. You know, the stressful moments absolutely, is actually will move absolutely.
1: us. You know, and it's very good because I think what we're already seeing on two levels, and this, in fact, is their hope, because, in fact, I was, trying, I was going to say before, in conclusion to my point, was I, I think it's very, very important, as in fact, you know, we are responding to the crisis, and the response is already very, very strong. But as we are responding, I think it's very important to respond in a way that doesn't look at the crisis as something that is temporary, so that we have to deal with this crisis so that we go back to something. Because in reality, when you look, I was making a connection between what is happening now and this whole story of, you know, capitalist complaint about the rate of profit, to say that we should not delude ourselves that things are going to improve. Um, unless there is a major major mobilisation that in fact that they were going to go back and there is a good slogan now you know let's not talk about going back to normality because normality was the problem. Normality was already a problem. so it's very important to look at responding now, for instance, all the all the forms of mutual aid, which is really fantastic but is happening you know, people bringing food, people bringing, you know, masks and and helping and the support for nurses, but also looking at the future and see that we have to create communitarian forms of reproduction, more communitarian, and we have to struggle to gain the resources to make that possible. That the way how a reproduction has been organized. And this is a theme that has been very central to my work and, and it has been inspired by what I've seen mostly in Latin America because people have gone through so many crises, crises that have really raised the you know, question of life and death. And I think they have understood that except through communitarian work, and communitarian forms of reproduction. They had no chance to survive. And so when you go to Latin America today, you already see the beginning of a whole set of structures that are not only enabling people to survive, but they also give you the sense of a new society. They give you the sense of another concept of life that this this life of competition, starvation, exploitation, selfishness, and, and, and breaking down human relation. I mean, because, you know, now we are all, you know, secluded, or many of us, in our homes, uh, certainly in our homes. Uh, but at the same time, this is a way in which capitalism wants to organize our life, to separate us from each other. And I think in Latin America a lot of people have understood and know. That it was through collective organizing, it's through collective labor, placing our reproduction in common, like the you know, the collective kitchens for instance, the all the things for the children, if the committee to ensure the children have a glass of milk every day, el merendero, the, the, the public garden. I've met women who organized a whole community in uh, in uh, Buenos Aires, in, uh, in a very, very popular area where there's no social services. And they did that after so many people die of dengue fever. And they realized that, my God, the reason people are dying is because the condition of reproduction are horrible. And they began to work collectively with a really, really, very impressive result.
0: That's beautiful. Thank you so much for being with us. My guest is Dr. Silvia Federici. She is the author of Revolution at Point Zero, Housework, Reproduction, and Feminist Struggle. Thank you again for being Thank with
1: you, us. Thank you, Silvia. Thank you very much. We've come to the end of our show, Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an internationally syndicated weekly program made available through campus and community stations and available out to the world at www.latinwavesmedia.com.